I have loved this Fruits of the Spirit series. It has been so good. I personally love the one on gentleness. And I mean, go and listen to it. It's incredible. There's so many truths of just how to think about these concepts in a way that's applicable. It's not just some worksheet, though the worksheets are cute, but it's not a felt board. It's not a Sunday school lesson. It's like a topic we should revisit like every day or am I being loving? Am I being kind? Um, so I personally really loved, you know, hearing about it. And I know that Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So even when you've been a seasoned believer in Christ and you know it, you have to hear it again. You have to go back to those words on healing after you were healed and hear it again, because it comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So such, a, such an amazing time here. I like how Andrew Womack puts it. He says, I'm never the power source, but I can flip the switch. And that's really what this is about. It is the Lord who helps us with these fruits, these qualities that maybe don't come so easily to us, but he has the capacity when we don't. He is peace. He is love. We tap into him. But this morning, I just really want to focus um, and bring my own personal perspective and revelation on God's goodness. For me, it's not an area of my walk with Jesus that's always come easily if this statement, God is good, is true, how many of you know that life can sometimes scream louder than truth? As it turns out, you can grow up in a Christian home. You can become saved at seven. You can be on the mission field by nine. You can start and lead your own Bible study in middle school. You can travel abroad to the nations and lead others to Christ by 16 preach on three different continents about his majesty and grace and somehow find yourself on a bathroom floor fighting for your sanity, living a nightmare you can't escape and wondering if God is real. And if he is, how in this moment can he be good? The beauty of walking out life with Christ and one another is that we may all arrive at the same destination, but how we get there is much different right? Like we probably all are thankful for the cross and the price that he paid, and we're grateful for forgiveness and the freedom of sin, but our stories are much different. So my story is very different than Pastor David's. It's even different than Amber's, and my hope today is that you might find a bit of your story in mine, and that any bit of what God has spoken to me that has broken the power of doubt and unbelief, you would cling to, you would take it as your own, and perhaps it might save you the struggle, the absolute torment of a mind unsettled about God's goodness. I like to do that through retelling a few parts of my testimony and some of the things I've picked up along the way, but I'd also like to take a brief, and I want to reiterate brief. This is not an all-inclusive topic on Joe. Maybe we could do a firestorm class one day, but it's not going to be this morning. It's just a few nuggets the Lord showed me through that book. Um, it's one of the books that for most of us kind of makes us cringe, right? Maybe because we don't understand it fully, or maybe because we don't want to, because once we know, then we have to be held accountable for it, right? I'm like, oh, I'm just going to go back to Genesis, right, when you're in your one-year Bible. Frankly, it's kind of a bizarre book, and it's unlike the rest of the Old Testament and really any other of the 65 canonized books of the Bible. But when I was sick crippled by autoimmunity, taking over my body and tormented by fear and mysterious symptoms. There wasn't a book more spoken of to me 
than the book of Job. People would say, well, maybe this is your Job season. Or, you know, Job was afflicted greatly. The goal is just to be sure that you're found faithful like him. After about five or six comments like this, I figured, well, maybe I should go read Job. I shut the book the first few times and I never could get past chapter two because if this book was intended to give me a biblical precedent for the Lord teaming up with Satan to persecute me on all sides and just spare my life, I just couldn't get behind that. And I definitely couldn't merge that with the belief that God is good. I was in the classroom at the time and I'm an English teacher at heart. And I'm sorry, you can't be both the villain and the hero. You have to pick the abuser that, beating, that beats his wife and then brings her the first aid to, to, to tend to her wounds. That's sadistic to me. But this is what Job made me feel like. God brings good, God brings evil. God heals me, God afflicts me. God is love, God is wrath. God protects me, God attacks me. God gives, God takes away. I found myself plucking the petals of the proverbial flower. He loves me, he loves me not. And then you flip over one book to the right and that didn't help because David in the Psalms would echo this message. He would say, God is my refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Turn the page. God has abandoned me. Then I will praise his name forever. Next line. You have cast us off and put us up to shame, given us like sheep intended for food. You sell your people for next to nothing. So which is it? Great icons of the Old Testament? Is he good? Y'all, I was desperate. Jeff looked at me across the island with tears in my eyes and the pajamas I failed to ever get out of with a look of disbelief that I I won't forget. And he said, are you even saved? The truth is, I didn't know. I was so disoriented by pain. I knew I needed my prayers to work. I knew I needed to be alive for my husband and my children. I knew I had prophetic words that hadn't come to pass. I knew I had dreams in my heart that I would feel God tug on. I really knew this couldn't be the best that it gets. I needed to decide once and for all who I would trust and who I would serve. This wavering between two things is suffocating. And for me, it was a cycle I was there when my first husband was unfaithful and I found myself with $2.89 in my bank account in the municipal court parking lot, gas tank on E and a single mom of three children. And in a screaming match on the phone, I told him, I hate this about you and I hate that about you, but the thing I hate the most is you've made me doubt the goodness of God. And I would stand up here a year and a half later, newly married, walking in a promise, and a prophet would speak to me who had never met me. You were married before, and your ex-husband did a lot of things, but the thing that he did, the worst thing he did to you is he made you doubt the goodness of God, and he said my words back to me. Guys, this is a theme in my life. It hit me again after trying to get a hold of my mom all day. I got a call from my dad that the police who broke the door down of her apartment found her deceased in her bed a couple months after my 29th birthday. Guys, I could list time and time again where life tugged on the faith of a little girl who once trusted her heavenly father without bitterness or unbelief in her heart. But at this point in my life, I had been sick for two straight years. 
I went to more doctor's appointments than I could count. I was frankly just tired of being sick and tired in what James calls a wave driven off on the sea, tossed by the wind, unstable in all my ways. I doubted everything, except I knew I'm not going to get anything from the Lord this way. Still without answers and no clue what I was supposed to do, I chose to do something different. I opened the book of Job and asked the Holy Spirit to read it with me, to illuminate his purpose for the, this book in our holy text. I listened to some teachings and I read a few articles, but while my revelation is still limited, what he showed me blessed me. It set my heart free from confusion and being double-minded about the topic of his goodness. Honestly, guys, it answered a deeper cry of my heart. I wanted to be healed, right? I just wanted to be free of pain. But you know what I wanted more than to be healed? That only the Lord knew? I had this deep cry to be steadfast. Make me steadfast. Make me confident in you. Make me unwavering in you. And that's the journey this took me on. So if that's a cry of your heart, may something here bring you closer to that point. I'll tell you this, I wouldn't wish that season or those seasons of hardship on anyone, but I wouldn't give up that time with Jesus and the closeness of how he met me there, his sweet presence for anything. It's the craziest thing, right? Like you're like, I wouldn't want anyone, not even an enemy to face this. But his presence, if you allow him if you'll only pursue him, nothing else satisfies when you're hurting. Nothing else will meet you there when you have that much pain. The holidays are coming and I can't, I really can't shake this feeling that the message is timely. You know how the enemy eats our lunch, especially around the holidays? Some of you are first facing your first holiday without a loved one or their birthday's coming up. And you have these memories and this sentiment and this nostalgia. And the enemy wants to come in and pervert and twist that story, not only about the loss, but about God. But I'll tell you this. He really is better than we think. Let's get started, huh? All right. If you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Job. The book of Job is unique as a biblical book because it's a narrative. What's a narrative, Ms. Pinkman? Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> a narrative is a story written with a narrator who records for the reader a particular situation or sequence of events. Essentially, it's just storytelling. Job is the oldest book of the Bible. The content obviously doesn't predate Genesis, which tells of the creation story, but it was written before Moses wrote Genesis and the rest of the Torah. The narrator of Job does a good job in chapter one by giving us some pretty solid background information on him. So we're gonna read Job one, one through five. It says this, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil and seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the East. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on the appointed day, and they would send and invite the three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it was 
when the days of feast had run their course, that Job would send and, and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job had said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Okay. So we know that he lives in the land of us. He's blameless, upright, feared God, shunned evil. He has 10 children, 11,000 animals, very large household, and he's the greatest in the East. Okay, great. And he offered burnt offerings when his kids were like, why went out? In case they were cursing God. Okay. So, <laughs> all right. <clears throat> okay, ladies and gentlemen, fasten your seatbelts and up, restore your tray table in the upright <laughs> position where it's about to get turbulent. Here we go. First, Job 6 through 8. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So first of all, I want to point out that that verse should trigger you, since we have the New Testament, right? To reference, I've heard this before, and it's 1 Peter 5, 8, which says, your adversary roams to and fro, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The unfortunate part is that Job could not flip over to the New Testament and read who his adversary was, right? So then God bust out with, have you considered my servant Job? What? I'm sorry. Anybody else? You're like, what? Why? Why would you do that? <laughs> David's comment about being offered up like sheep for slaughter kind of feels accurate now, right? But then we read Job, Satan's response about Job. He says, verse 9, So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Okay. So check out his response. His response is, does Joe fear God for nothing? Have you not placed a hedge around him and protected him and blessed every side of his life? See, this, this is what Satan is telling God about us today. Still, he's saying, don't they just love you because you blessed them? If you... If, if a curse came to their life, if a sickness touched their body, if one of their children's children passed away, if they lost their spouse, then they would curse you because it's not a real adoration and worship for you. It's because of the favor and the blessing that you've given them. That is the accusation. But here's the thing. God doesn't ask questions he doesn't know the answer to. When he was asking Satan, where have you been? And have you considered my servant Job? He wasn't asking because he didn't know the answer. God asked questions for conversation and self-realization. I don't know if I have time for this, but like, I'm, it was 2.30 in the morning. <laughs> okay, any notes? I probably should just leave those out. But like, have you ever wondered how God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus talk to one another? Because like, they know everything. So is God ever like, hey, I was talking to Moses today, and they're like, we know. You know what I mean? Like, hey, maybe for dinner we should, you know what I mean? And they're like, no, I know, I know that too. Like, anyway, 
that came at 2.30. Anyway, okay, but look at Satan's response. He says, does Job fear God for nothing? He's been stalking Job. It wasn't like he was roaming about Egypt and God was like, hey, look over here in us at my boy Job. And then Satan was like, oh, tell me about him. God is not offering up Job to an oppressor who otherwise was unaware of his existence. Instead, God is bringing to light what Satan was doing. And I'll tell you, the sentence that really got to me though is when God asked Satan, have you considered my servant Job? It just never set well with me. So I looked into the word considered. In English, do you know that it means diligently analyzed? Hey, where have you been? Have you been diligently analyzing my servant Job? That changes something. And then I searched out in the Hebrew, and can I tell you, this revelation alone broke me. Considered is two words in Hebrew. Sum which means to set, like knocking an arrow into position in a bow. And leb means heart. What if when they translated in the Hebrew to English, they wouldn't have used the word considered and instead wrote, have you set your heart upon my servant Job? Or with your arrow knocked in the string of your bow, have you set your target on his back? This changes everything about what I thought about that conversation and consequently the entire dynamic between God and Satan. If that little verse in Job has made you think that they're conspiring against you, that they're having these little petty conversations, do we wanna give her cancer? I don't know, do we? Do we wanna kill her spouse? I don't know, what do you think? Let's see what happens, they're faithful, what's the response? That's not happening. He's not his messenger boy. The Lord is not partnering with Satan. He has no evil in him. He doesn't have cancer in heaven. He doesn't have sickness. He doesn't have abuse. He doesn't have torment. Jesus came to set the captives free. He says, I came to heal everyone oppressed by the devil, not oppressed by God. We've let one little arbitrary kind of strange book Create theologies and doctrines for suffering, and it's not okay. It's not okay. And then in verse 12, we get hung up on the Lord telling Satan, well, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person, which feel like the Lord is giving the devil permission, or trigger warning, allowing the devil to persecute Job and ravish his life because I hear this. Well, he may not be causing you to be sick, but he's allowing it for his purposes. <clears throat> Question time. Who defeated Satan, sin, death, hell, and the grave? Jesus. In the book of Job, the oldest book of the Bible, has Jesus come yet? No. On this one principle alone, it becomes erroneous to play out our lives as a modern-day Job. He lives in a world even Jesus calls Satan the ruler of in John 12, 31, and he doesn't have the victory of the cross, and he hasn't been delivered from the powers of darkness, and he hasn't been translated into the kingdom of light, and he hasn't been redeemed by the blood and the forgiveness of his sins. None of it. But Lacey, don't you believe in the sovereignty of God and that he is in control of all things? And my answer to you would be, no, I don't. 
not in the way that you're thinking because the connotation of sovereignty has changed through religion. What religion has told you is that sovereignty means everything passes through his hands. Like he has these giant red stamps, like approved and denied up there. Like things are coming across his desk. Like he's some puppeteer and he's like miracles and car wreck and happy divorce and infidelity. Like he's not doing that. Death and murder of innocent children, disease that ravishes a loved one is not goodness. He's not orchestrating it or allowing it to teach you a lesson. If I beat my children or I allow the neighbor's kids to do it, I should be arrested. If I put a little bit of bleach in Autumn's sippy cup every day so that in her sickness she has to depend on me and she gets closer to me as her mom, I should be hauled off to jail. But we say these things about God because we want explanations and answers for the question marks instead of really knowing his nature. I'm going to pass out, y'all. <laughs> so bring me back. He is all-powerful. Hear me out. He is all-powerful. But he's limited by some laws he's set into motion. See, when he gives you a gift, he gives it without repentance, which means he doesn't take it back. So sometimes when through free will and the authority and dominion to rule the earth, we've given into things that were inferior and are now fallen. Can he intervene? Sure, he's God. But he is limited by laws he put into place. Sin that we chose and ushered in a fallen reality. And Satan, who hates those who love God and is sure if you shake us, we'll fall away. Despite that skewed ver version of sovereignty that we've developed, can I read you the dictionary definition? Awesome. I was going to anyway. It's to be supreme in authority, power, rank, and stature. That I agree with. He is far above. He is supreme in power, authority, rank, and stature. Will he get the last word? Absolutely. Will the state of eternity outweigh the temporary afflictions of this world? I can guarantee it. But look at what happens in Job. I'm going to summarize a bit for the sake of time. A messenger runs up to Job and he says, hey, all of your oxen and donkeys were killed and your servants. Then another one and says, hey, a fire from heaven fell, burning up the sheep and servants, and then the camels and the servants. And lastly, all 10 of his children were killed when a wind came from the wilderness and it collapsed on all 10 children. And Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. And naked I came from my mother's womb, he says. Naked I shall return. I, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. And people will say, look how noble and faithful Job is under the hard hand of God. Job loved God so much, even though he slew his sons and daughters, robbed his riches, afflicted his health, and crushed his happiness. If we could only approach suffering the way Job did, then we would be righteous too. But hold up. Who was doing the afflicting? Satan. And who does Job think God is afflicting him? God. So this sets up the rest of the book. For the sake of time, I'm going to summarize, but I don't mean to shortchange the scripture. It's just that in chapters 2, 1 through 10, we'll see a similar conversation with God and Satan. And he says to him, my servant Job maintains his integrity, though you have incited him against me and you destroy him without cause. I make this point because his friends come, his wife speaks up. She's like, why don't you just curse yourself and die? She's a winner. 
<laughs> I, I had a joke. Anyway, I probably, anyway, maybe I'll share it at 1130. I was going to say that she probably should, she probably spent some time in purgatory for this. And then I was like, just kidding. We don't believe that. And then I thought, well, that's offensive, but I'm also a woman preaching on a Sunday morning about Job. So I think we probably crossed that meter a long time ago. Okay. All right. <laughs> Um, anyway, so he gets attacked by his body, right? Satan's like, well, that didn't do it. Let me attack him with painful boils. That doesn't do it. Job tells his wife, should we accept blessings from God and not curses? Ungodly belief. Because he can't read James that says every good and every perfect gift comes from God of lights in whom there's no variation or shadow of turning, right? There's no variation in the gifts that he gives. He's not giving you something evil to bring something good. He does not do evil things. His children were a gift. He says God gave them and took them away. Let me tell you something. Your children are a gift from God. It's scriptural. I don't care if they're 14 and driving you crazy not speaking to anyone directly in here, but (laughs) I love you. Um, Seriously, they are gifts, right? And the gifts of God come without repentance. He's not taking your children. He's not teaching you a lesson. That wasn't his heart. His heart is for long life. His heart is for you to die of old age, to just go to sleep and not wake up in heaven. That is his heart. Don't you dare let somebody tell you he needed another angel. Don't you dare let him, let you, him think that he, he had to take them because he needed them. He doesn't need any of us. It's the plot of the enemy to steal, kill, and destroy. And I'm sorry that happened if that's you. And the Lord mourned with you and he was close to the brokenhearted. And if you've never processed that, I invite you to go back to that moment and ask him where he was. Because I promise you he was there. And I promise you he held that baby or that child with you. But the point of Job is, for chapters 3 through 31, it's Job and three friends, Bildad, Eliphaz, Zophar, great names. Um, <clears throat> you millennials that want new names, those are good ones. Uh, <laughs> sorry. I, anyway. Um, so three friends, they come, they comfort him. But here's the thing. For 29 chapters of the 42 chapters of Job, they sit and they talk about why this happened because we want to know that, right? We have to know what, why, why did it happen to him? Why did it happen to her? Why, why us? God knew it was a question that would drive us crazy. And our feeble minds would want to know why. But here's what they do. There's, I, have the, I can send you notes if you want the details. But the truth is, is that every friend begins to speak up over seven, after seven days of silence, which I don't know how they did that. But after seven days of silence, they begin to offer ideas about why this happened. And Job sings of his own righteousness He praises himself. He says, I didn't deserve this. I have been blameless before God. I have served him. Why is this happening to me? And his friends say, well, you know, it probably was some hidden sin. There's probably something there. You must have done something wrong, right? His friends say, if you were peering upright, this wouldn't have happened. This punishment by God is even as harsh as your sin deserves. But they had, they had previously been stating his righteousness. And there was no record of that sin. And even God says it was without cause. 
Job is, is uh, recorded for saying things like, the terrors of God have been erased against me. Yes, concede, surrender. My righteousness still stands. When I lie down, you scare me with dreams and terrify me with vision so severely that my soul chooses strangling and death rather than my body. Yes, even God saves wickedness for his children. And then in Job 7, he says, what is man that you should set your heart on him? Why have you set me as your target? The word there that they use and translated as considered in chapter one, they translated in the other two versions in chapter seven. So what's the takeaway? Guys, Job had no clue who his adversary was. He speaks in error for 29 chapters, Job and his friends. They speculate and they wonder you have Job who honestly had heard about God. He believed what he had heard about God. He sacrificed offerings to God. He prayed to God and did things for God, but he hadn't been with God. And when the enemy, because he will, shakes everything, he didn't really know him. He had never sat at his feet. He was the greatest in all the land but he had never walked with them in the garden in the cool of the day. Carnal wisdom couldn't cut it. Natural reasoning was absurd and rife with error. But once he had been with God, at the end, even in a rebuke, God comes to him. Guys, I wish I had time to share it. it I just can't believe what God says to him. There's this really cool guy, Elihu, who I think wrote the book. He's like young and he's observing, but he doesn't say anything until chapter 32 through 35. If you want to know the nature of God, go read those five chapters. I may have time to read it next service, but guys, it's incredible. You'll find that he's far from wickedness. He's far to commit iniquity. He hears the cries of the afflicted. His eyes are always on the ways of men. He speaks in thunder. He seals the hand of every man that all men may know his work. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous for they are on the throne with kings. He has seated them forever and they are exalted. And he ends that speech, Elihu does, with stand still and see the wondrous works of God. And then in chapter eight, the Lord answers Job in the whirlwind and says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you. You will answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Who determined its measurements? To what were its foundations fastened? Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Do you know the constellations? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Oh, snap. I want to be on the other end of that conversation, right? I'm like, oh, I better get this together right here. Then Job answered, and, he, and he's repentant. We can learn from Job in his repentance, where he says, I spoke of things I did not know, but I see you now. I've tasted and seen of your goodness now. God blesses his life because it's God's heart to bless him. It was never God's heart to afflict him. He blessed him in the beginning. That was God's heart. How many of you know, even if you're facing a trial right now, you know you have seen the goodness of God? Yes, yes. That is his heart, and it hasn't changed. That's right. That is his heart for you. 
The reality is Job did have a righteous appreciation and reverence of God throughout the entire account of his life, but he was woefully ignorant to the Lord's flawless character and the vile origin of a sinister devil. He deemed God both his redeemer and his adversary, both the hero and the villain, and he wavered from hopeful praise to suicidal pit of despair. He was wind-whipped, a wind-whipped wave tossed and driven on the sea, unstable in all his ways. My invitation to you this morning is to come to the Lord. Come to the Lord like Job. God, open our eyes, purify our hearts, and wash our hands. His life was fully restored. The Lord blessed Job with double the blessings in his latter years. He lived 140 years more. He got to see four generations of children and grandchildren. And I'll tell you, in those hardest moments, the Lord redeemed my life from the pit. I got out of my sickness bed. I went on to have two healthy, beautiful baby girls in a body that I thought was broken. I just celebrated nine years with the love of my life. Who loves me like Jesus. Guys, he, if you'll let him, he'll come into that messy place. He'll come into that thing that you just want to skip over and like, "Mm, let's just get past that. Let's just distract. No, he wants to go there. Because he can redeem anything. Anything. He's an expert in broken. He's an expert in ashes. When you've burned it to the ground, he'll meet you there. I want to invite you this morning, if you have believed something false about his heart, I know we only have a few minutes, but I I want to invite you to stay and we want to pray for you. Can we ask God to come in? This won't do it. Coming to church, listening to some good messages, hearing about him, tithing to him, offering your service for him. You got to be with him. And maybe you've loved the Lord for a long time. Maybe you have trusted in him and he has been faithful and good to you, but there's a circumstance or a situation where you're caught up in the why. But why? Can I tell you? I don't know the details and I don't want to be presumptuous, but we're in a fallen world. This isn't our home. And there's an enemy who hates you. It's not personal. He hates you because of God in you. But the Lord's not partnering with that. He's not trying to teach you a lesson. He'll test you other ways. There's a grid for suffering. Please hear me out. There's a grid for persecution, but let's go to the New Testament. Let's ask Jesus. Let's look at the red letter words for that. Is that okay? Can I pray for you? Thank you for your time this morning. Dear Jesus, meet us here, God. You're so good, God. Open our eyes where you've been. I know you're working on the scenes. You do things we can't comprehend. Your goodness knows no bounds. You have wondrous works. You hold the sea. You hold the tide. You make clouds to give a shade. You draw drops of rain. 
to water our land. God, you have thought of everything to take care of us and provide for us. Meet us here this morning. Meet us here in this season. Meet us here in our homes where the enemy has written the narrative, either on his own or through false doctrine, false teaching that we've accepted. God, would you come in and align it with your word, with your nature, with your heart. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. The voice of our Father. We have a Savior. Job cried out for a mediator. Where is my advocate? And we have one. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for defeating it all. That we might know you and walk in victory. We love you, Jesus. In your precious name. Amen.